Shabbat Shalom, everybody. This is the Vortex for the Parsha of Yitro. Yitro is obviously the most important Parsha because it includes the Ten Commandments, which is the whole core of the uh, relationship between God and the Jewish people. The covenant was entered into in this week's Parsha, and really that was the beginning of the relationship between God and the people as a nation. The purpose of the Yitziat Mitzrayim was specifically to arrive at Har Sinai. Yitro was a Kohen Midian. He was a high priest in the area of Midian. And the Medrash tells us that he had, in his explorations for a religious life um, and a deity, he had investigated every single alternative known religion at the time and way of life. And he determined that the Jewish way was the, the Jewish people, was the people that he wanted to be part of. And the Vayishma is obviously a resonance to Shema Yisrael. He understood immediately the unity and the power of Hashem. And at that moment, he ceases to be described in the Torah as Kohen Midian, and he's simply described as the father-in-law of Moshe. That transition from the priest of Midian, the high priest of Midian, to the, um, to the father-in-law of Moshe, which now becomes the definition of who he is, because it's repeated many times, almost every time in the beginning of this week's parsha where his name is mentioned, the word that he is the father-in-law of Moshe comes up right afterwards. That is his definition. It is worth knowing that the name of the parsha could have been the story of Moshe, the story of the Ten Commandments, Matan Torah. There are far more seemingly appropriate names for the parsha than Yitro, and yet this is the name of the parsha. So we need to look at this character carefully to see his import and the things we can learn from his behavior, and I suggest they are the following. Yitro is able to see the hand of Hashem in everything. He is in awe of the miracles and the wonders that he observes. And as uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has said, a Jew should be living in a state of constant, radical amazement. Yitro did. He was in awe of the power and the activity of Hashem, and uh, I think it behooves all of us to be more in touch with that power and to be more uh, admiring of and aware of the miracles that take place. Yitro also shows Moshe the value of time. Time spent in unproductively and ineffectively is time wasted. And he was able to show Moshe how he could use his time uh, more effectively, more efficiently. I think that Jews understand that the only asset that really counts is the value of the time that remains for each of us on this earth. To put it crudely or basically, it's the remaining time between vertical and horizontal. That's the job of each of us, is to make sure that we use our time in the most effective, productive, meaningful, rewarding uh, way possible. And I think that Yitro showed Moshe how to do that in a very big way. Yitro is a great example of somebody who changes his mind. He was firmly fixed on a prior religion, sees new data, new evidence, and changes his mind. And you know, there's a great quote which says, there are two kinds of fools, those who keep changing their mind and those who never change their mind. And so knowing when to change your mind is a sign of great wisdom, and Yitro did it in a, in a very, very material way. And finally, with respect to Yitro, there is an idea that I think is, is worth sharing about the name itself. The word Yitro means excess, abundant, surplus. I think if we live our lives giving the excess, giving surplus, giving extra, I think it'll be a more 
effective and rewarding life. I think it's a powerful lesson from Yitro. Do more than is required. It's the extra little bits that are actually the big bits. And Yitro increased the Jewish package of goodies in a very powerful way by, first of all, reaffirming his uh, checking of all the alternatives as a precondition, by the way, to the giving of the Torah. The Jewish people needed to know that this was, uh, this was the, authentic, uh, the authentic way and not to uh, bother about alternatives. He had also added to our people by taking care of Moshe much earlier on when he was escaping from the Egyptians and uh, found refuge in Midian, where, by the way, he also found his wife, Zipporah, and they had two children. When Yidro comes uh, to Bnei Yisrael, he brings Moshe's wife and the two children, the two sons, which may indicate some marital disharmony or the neglect that often takes place when Jewish leaders uh, take care of their projects ahead of their family. His focus on family as the primary, um, the primary identification in society comes through. And I think it's a lesson for us. Yitro puts family first, and I think uh, it's a lesson for all of us. That's a long story. And uh, it's certainly possible that Yitro's wise words to Moshe when he sees him working hard all day as a judge and a teacher of the Jewish people to say, you know, you can't do this alone. You need to set up an organizational structure, a hierarchy, which, by the way, forms the basis of all, all organizational structure to this day and all judicial and legal systems where you have a delegation of duty and you have higher and lower rungs to do the same. That whole idea was brought to the Jewish people, to Moshe, and in fact to the world by Yitro. We learn from Yitro also how to give advice, which is you don't just pick a problem, but you come with a solution. And he did. He explained to Moshe the, what the problem was and also what the solution was. That's the constructive and positive way to help people, not destructive and critical, but came up with very good advice. And to Moshe's great credit, when good advice came his way, he grabbed it. There was no arrogance or um, disdain for the unsolicited advice. It was, it was good, good input, and he eagerly took it and implemented it. Another valuable lesson, both on giving and on receiving good advice for all of us. We then come to Matan Torah, where the two powerful words that summarize much of the Jewish way of living are added, Na'aseh v'nishma, we will do and we will understand. Now, secular society does it the other way. First, we understand, we're motivated, we're moved, and then we act. Judaism believes that actions produce feelings rather than secular view, which is that feelings, attitudes, and approaches result in appropriate actions. So when you see that sequence, you understand immediately that doing the mitzvot produces the gratitude, the feeling of closeness to Hashem, and the reward itself from doing it and not waiting until you're moved to do the mitzvot by a, an understanding uh, of, the, of the outcome which moves you to take action. That is a, a, a secular and a prevailing uh, cultural society uh, approach to the sequence. In fact, we believe that appropriate actions not only produce understanding but actually change your mood. As, as has been said, if you want to be happy, act happy. And there is much more to that than most people give credence to. Kabbalat Torah itself has many resonances with the wedding ceremony, and the, um, the rabbis liken 
the uh, Kabbalah Torah to a wedding ceremony. In fact, the uh, metaphor that God himself uses to describe his relationship with the Jewish people is one of marriage. And so the theme number at the wedding is seven, Sheva Brachot. We have seven blessings. We have seven nights of Sheva Brachot. Uh, seven is the leitmotif number throughout the wedding ceremony, and it comes directly from the Torah given at Sinai, where there were seven kolot, seven sounds of the shofar. As the Bnei Israel gets ready to receive the Ten Commandments, we see a fundamental change in the language used. And if you look at the uh, beginning of chapter 19, it says, This is the third month uh, of the Exodus from Egypt. Ba'u midbar Sinai. They came to the uh, desert of Sinai. Vayis'u mirfidim. Note the plural. They traveled from Rifidim. Vayavo'u midbar Sinai. And they arrived at the desert. Vayachanu midbar, And they camped in the desert. And then suddenly we have this dramatic change from plural to singular. And it says, Vayichan sham Yisrael neged hahar. And he, singular, B'nai Yisrael camp uh, opposite the mountain. And um, Rashi says on that, um, At that moment, when they were ready to receive the, receive the Torah, they were uniquely unified, coalesced into a single, single person, as if they were one. And that unity was the, um, was the uh, condition that was necessary for receiving the Torah. By the way, this stands in sharp contrast uh, to what we saw uh, when the uh, Egyptians were chasing um, the Jews, following the Jews after the uh, exodus from Egypt. And over there we see the same coalescence from plural to singular. It's they go and they go and they go, uh, referring to the Egyptians. And suddenly, And here Egypt, singular, not nosim, nosea, acharehem. And over there, Rashi says, That means one heart and one man. But knowing the difference between the sequence tells us volumes about how hatred for the Jews works, which is they get unified. And how does our unification work? By being dedicated to Hashem. And notice the switching. When it comes to Egyptian hatred for us, it's they have their hearts first, their passions drive the people that they are. When it comes to, to uh, the Jewish people, it's people with one heart. First they determine what kind of people they want to be. And then they have their heart that follows them. Uh, they don't follow their heart. And more about that uh, next week, uh, God willing. But uh, this is a very profound theological idea and also a lot of lessons on how we live our lives. But Jews determine what kind of people we want to be. And then that determines our feelings and our passions. Um, secular world tends to go the other way around. Passions determine the kind of people that they are. Then continuing, B'nai Yisrael now receives the Ten Commandments. Uh, not really commandments, they're actually statements or edicts. The thing about them is they could be read many ways. First of all, the classic way is the first five are between man and God, and the second one are between man and man. So we read them one through five, and then six through ten. The other way to read them is one to six, two to seven. In other words, you lay out the first five, 
and alongside them the next five, and then you see parallels and linkages between the first and the sixth and so on. You look across the lines. But the most interesting one I learned this week from my beloved friend Rabbi Johnny Schippel is actually there is another way to look at them as a barbell. Number one links to number 10, and number two links to number nine and so on, which, which we call in Hebrew atbash. What's interesting about that is what is the connection between the first commandment where we are commanded about Hashem, His power, His, his unity, and His uniqueness, etc.? And by the way, notice that he ident God identifies himself as the one who brought us out of Egypt, not as the one who created the world. Very interesting. As brought us out of Egypt, that's the big, big thing that Jews have to be aware of always. It's the beginning of the creation of the Jewish people, not of the world. But the tenth one is you shall not envy, you shall not covet. And then it doesn't just say you shall not covet everything, which is how it ends, but it lists a whole lot of things, your neighbor's wife and his uh, oxen and so on, all the things that you shouldn't covet. And then it says, and everything of his. So what, what do these things have in common? And by the way, there's no other legislative system that mandates feelings, attitudes. Uh, to have the Ten Commandments have one of them being you shall not covet is astounding and gives much insight into the nature of the Jewish neshama and of the Jewish legal system, how we seek to improve ourselves. But the linkage is that if you really believe that Hashem controls the world and Hashem is in charge of everything, then you believe that you have everything that you're entitled to get. And if you do, how could you possibly covet what someone else has and not take pleasure just in what you were given? And so the reason for the repetition is because the Ten Commandments wants to ensure that we understand that there are no exceptions to coveting. Coveting of anything is inappropriate because anything you covet would indicate that you don't think you have everything you're entitled to. And as I have said many times, there are people out there who think a glass is either half full or half empty. But of course, Jews know that that's just wordsmithing. If you have a glass that can contain eight ounces and it's only got four ounces of liquid in it, then whether you call it half full or half empty is simply a matter of words. Jews have a whole different way of looking at that, which is to pour the four ounces of liquid into a glass, which has a four ounce capacity. Your glass will then be full and you will rejoice in the fullness of your cup. And the words that prove that are the words, Kosi Rivaya, my cup overfloweth. That's the Jewish way. And when your cup overfloweth, because you have the right size cup to contain what you were blessed with, then your cup will overflow. And that's my blessing for all of us, that we should all have large cups and they should always be full and we should be grateful for the fullness of our cups and not worry about cups that have a little bit extra space to squeeze in something that belongs to somebody else. Have a great show.